Hi there, thanks for being here. I'm Greg, a leadership and career coach. In this podcast, you will hear the stories of people who found fulfillment and joy in their careers. You will learn how they identify their vocation, and you will hear the courageous changes they made in their lives to pursue their passion and purpose. I'm on a mission to help people start on their own path to meaningful success. It's a journey I embarked on myself after 15 years in a career that had all external markers of success, but had lost purpose and joy. If you're looking for direction, check our Find Direction course on www.derby.me. Derby yourself, my friends. My guest today is Kenza Barada, founder and CEO of The Wow Project, which is dedicated to developing people and organizations through leadership development and team alignment workshops. She's also the co-founder of Ait Hazala, a permaculture and eco-agriculture project south of Marrakesh in Morocco. And there she grows a sustainable and edible forest with her husband and children. She's also a board member at the French association hashtag le plus or hashtag the most important, a think tank and action lab to promote an inclusive society. And last but not least, I've got to discover that she's a passionate and expert problem solver. Before this, Kenza worked in senior roles in Morocco and in France in the strategic consulting industry, mostly for McKinsey. Kenza has been on my list of people I've been wanting to interview for this podcast from the very beginnings uh, because she's someone who has truly dared to be, who has clarified what she really wanted for her life and career and pursued it with courage, resilience, creativity, and much more all, as I'm sure we will discover soon. Kenza. I'm really uh, happy, honored to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the Derby podcast. Thank you very much, Craig. I'm very happy to be with you. And, and, and what a program I, I discovered with you. It's written me. It's very exciting. Great. So <laughs> I thought we could start with you describing a little more where you are right now, where are you taking our call from and yes. what does your typical week or month look like right now? Okay, very good. So I'm currently sitting in my office in the city center of Marrakesh. This is the red city of Morocco, sound of the, the, the big city, the big capital, economic, and also the political capital, which are Casablanca and Rabat. We've been living here for three years now. And this is my office in the city center. And we live in a farm in Ait Razala that you just mentioned with my husband and our three boys. So what does my week look like or my months look like? Let's start with, with, with the week. So I have different hats, as you mentioned. Basically, my week is three days at the office. So Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, where I generally either facilitate trainings, workshops, or coach teams or leaders. And I do it from my office. I have two days, let's say, more focused uh, around me and the farm, which are Wednesday and Friday. And on, on these mornings, I practice yoga and meditation mindfulness in the mornings. And then in the afternoon, I have lunch at the farm with either workers or people who visit us. And I spend time around the farm project, around Ait Hazanias. And I try to spend one day of this with my husband. 
And the rest being starting from 4 p.m. And also weekends are dedicated to my family, to our three boys, to their activities, to play together, to cooking together, and having meals together. So basically, this is my simplified week. No, I was hoping go back in time and start, I don't know how early is worth going in your childhood and your upbringing. And then hopefully through this interview, we'll pull a threat to where okay. you are now. Okay. You're originally from, Mar from not from Marrakesh. I actually don't know where you're from uh, originally, but okay. you're originally from Morocco. But yeah. so can you tell a little bit about how was it when you grew up? Okay, very good. I, I, I was born, I grew up in Casablanca. With family, a very cool family, like really not traditional for Moroccan family, but more Western mindset type of family. I, I like to, to talk about this childhood because I, I was born and grew up in a building that used to belong to my mother's family. And in this building, my grandfather had his at, the, at, the, at zero, zero level. And then there was, used to, they, they used to leave there. Many family members, like cousins, my great-grandmother, my mother's best friend, and they were all living in this building. So it was very funny to come from uh, school in the afternoon and stop by my grandfather's office and go to, to visit my great-grandmother and go to play with cousins, etc. So it was a very nice place, and the school was five minutes away from this building. And the district was more a, a city center, Kaza city center type of district. So very nice with a lot of uh, shops and uh, market, etc. traditional market, which was really nice. So if I summarize, very family and friends type of childhood. And we used to spend weekends and also all our holidays with our grandparents that were second parents to us. We spent, so we used to spend a lot of time with them with my cousin who used to live in France, but come for all holiday. So I say that very happy childhood, mm. uh, very into family and friends. And if I talk about myself, I would say I was like a, the model girl. So I love to study. I love to read. I love to, to just go to school, to spend time with my friends. So it's a very easygoing daughter and child. And I had time. So basically when I was not with my, at school or with my school friends or family, I love to just to dream around reading, around music or around just walking around and daydreaming basically. The, this was my childhood. Sounds a uh, very special childhood you had and uh, full of life. Yeah. That's really what I'm picking up. And so from there, so I imagine you went to a sort of French education uh, style, at least place to, to study. And then what, where would you say was it an important step yes. as an adult life or in your career or just more generally? Yes. Okay. So just to specify, so my education was more mixed. It was French, Arabic. It's a private school system in Morocco, but where we used to study 50% of our time in Arabic and 50% in French. And I joined the French system by the end of my high school, basically. Uh, so I didn't spend that much time with the French system which I think is a great wealth because I do speak Arabic very well. I do write in Arabic, I do read in Arabic, and I can intervene in Arabic and work in Arabic, which is not the case of 
many Moroccan leaders that we can meet in, in, in business schools or engineer schools abroad. So this is one specificity that I'm really proud of and that helped me do many things. I would say the first step was when I left Morocco at the end of my high school and went to study in France. So I spent six years uh, in Paris. So I did a prep school and then I, I joined a, I integrated the business school. So this was the first step, leaving the family, leaving the environment, the Moroccan environment to just go elsewhere. And I have to mention that it also it was the first challenge for me because I left right after my parents divorced and it was a challenging time. So it was a, yeah, the last year of my high school, they, they got divorced and it was hard, hard time. So basically the family broke and things had changed family-wise and I had to leave and start my studies. So this was the first challenge. The second challenge that was really a big one for me was my, was during my studies at ESSEC, my mother, she had a cancer and she died after my, during my second year at ESSEC. And I think that I heard fell apart at that time. And I mean, on, on, on these challenges that I face in my life. So what I did basically is that I ran away <laughs> out of, out of the energy of leaving and also rebuilding life, but also running away from, from this, this terrible shock. I chose to go to Argentina to do an exchange program, six months exchange program. And after that, I just came back for a few weeks to Paris and then I I went back again to Argentina. So I ended up spending almost two years in Buenos Aires. So first as a student and then as a wanderer. And then I started my career at L'Oreal. So I worked for L'Oreal with Buenos Aires. It was, of course, the beginning of something, but also the end of something. And the end of this something was the end of my, my career in consumer goods. I would say, because when I used to say that, I chose to, to do uh, marketing and communication. And uh, then I joined, I worked for EMG, uh, Procter & Gamble, for almost a year as an intern. And then when I went to Andretina, I worked for L'Oreal. And then I said, okay, it, I cannot keep working in consumer goods. And sorry for not to work in consumer goods. But to me, it didn't make sense. Really, it didn't make sense. In what way? I couldn't. In what way? Basically, I couldn't find a meaning of like selling shampoos or diapers to anyone. <laughs> and it didn't make sense to sell them in, in emerging countries because I started working for PNG in Morocco and selling consumer goods to people who didn't have, uh, who, who were poor people didn't make sense to me. I'd rather spend my time helping them have a better life rather than selling them shampoos or diapers. Right. So it's, it's very personal, but I could, it didn't make any sense to me. And I remember myself like in Argentina, waking up in the morning to go to work as a sales, so, junior sales, something for L'Oreal. And I started just crying and saying, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I cannot see myself doing that in the next year or the next years. It's not, uh, okay. so the end of the consumer goods career. And then my story with Argentina ended, ended also just to, to, just to put a date, it was in, in 2001, 2000, 2001, it, and it was when Argentina was completely falling apart. It's basically, right. uh, I was there and they changed the seven presidents in two weeks and the whole country was in the streets to make 
in their own revolution. So it was a very difficult times for Argentina and for the Argentinians. So it was not easy also to, to live there and, and start my professional life in Argentina. So after almost two years, I decided to leave and I, I came back to Morocco. Basically, I had no visa to go back to France. So I had no choice but going back to Morocco. So this page was turning of consumer yes. goods. Argentina was collapsing. Yes. How did the departure occur? You know, was it uh, a one-year contract that ended? Was it just the crisis? Was it just, did you hand it in your resignation? Basically, they had just confirmed me as a junior market, junior brand manager. My full-time contract was formal and starting. And I just decided it was not for me. And it was time to just end it. So I remember calling my boss on a Friday evening at a, and I wouldn't find him. So I just left a message and say, I'm really sorry, but I'm leaving tomorrow. And I will not be at the office on Monday. So I'm just leaving. And we will sort all the paperwork afterwards. But I'm just leaving. I just left a message. So this is interesting, right? Because I often talk to people who have had to hand in their resignation. Those are big moments, right? They're moments of choice where you say, actually, I really want something else. And I wonder, how was this moment for you? How did it feel? At that moment, it was not, I want something else. It was, I don't want this. I just don't want this, so I'm just leaving. I had a one-year one year plane ticket, and my one-year plane was finishing like on, on the Saturday. So I had to make a decision to leave the stay. And if I would stay, I had to buy another plane ticket. So I wanted to come back and stay a few months after that. So I just decided, okay, I'm done. I'm leaving. <laughs> the return ticket was a bit of a bridge that you knew existed and that yes, you had to exactly. catch before it disappears. And how did it feel to actually call your boss and say, I don't want to work there anymore? I, I, I didn't think too much about it. It was just the right thing to do for me and say, okay, done. And I'm leaving. And, and I was sure that I wouldn't have any regret because it was completely aligned inside, even though it was difficult. Of course, it was difficult to end this chapter of my life. But it was okay. I remember taking the plane and saying goodbye to everybody and, uh, and just taking all my stuff. And I remember in the middle of the night when we were, when we were in, in the middle of the Atlantic, I just woke up and then I realized I had just left everything. And, I, and then I started crying <laughs> and I couldn't stop crying for let's say whatever, 30 minutes. And it's okay. I just left and I'm done with this chapter. Let's see what's going on. What's going to happen for me. Sure. And as, as I mentioned, I couldn't go back to France because I didn't have a visa anymore. So I had to go back to Morocco. So you quit and you didn't know what was going to happen next. Yes. You just knew you were going back to Morocco. That's it. Yes. Exactly. And how did that feel? It sounds like a jump in the unknown. No, because it was jumping in the known basically because I was going back home. So yeah. it was a new known, of course, because I had been away for a few years, like six or seven years, and my mother had died and other things had happened uh, during the same period of my life. But it was going back to the known, to the new known. Mm. And I, I figured out that I needed, I really needed to be in Morocco and reconciliate with Morocco and with my Moroccan roots. 
it was something important for me. I had to do the, the work, basically. Okay. And, and what was that calling, th th this work, the work of reconciliation? Yes, it was the work of reconciliation because I ran away uh, of Morocco at the end of my high school. I said, okay, now I'm done with Morocco. I'm done with my family. I'm done with everybody. I'm just like leaving and I'm going to study in France. I live in France and make my, and, and spend all my life in France and I'm not coming back. And then I went to Argentina, running away to the other side of the Atlantic and saying, this is very far from Morocco and I don't want to be in Morocco. So at, at some point it was important for me to, to say, okay, but, but Morocco, it was also, it is also my country. I have my roots there. I have my family, my ancestors, my language, my friends, and it's an emerging country and this country leaving the transition. So there is something for me there mm -hmm. uh, and I need to sort it out. And then what happened? I looked for a job very quickly because I wanted to start uh, something new very quickly, but I didn't know what I wanted to do because I had just decided to stop working for consumer goods, but I didn't know what else I could do. So I started talking to people that I knew, leaders, managers, CEOs, etc., from my networks, my different networks, family, friends, PNG, etc. And I happened to meet someone that was running a, a small consulting firm that was the, the, the former Anderson Consulting uh, team that had uh, become independent after the Enron uh, scandal. Basically, he told me about the consulting job and the impact uh, the small team was having on companies and the corporate ecosystem in Morocco and what they, they were trying to achieve. And he told me about the people who were working there. And then I had a second conversation with uh, his partner at that time. And she told me very interesting stuff, but she told me also that this job was not creative and probably that I would struggle with this part that I was more looking for, that I was looking for in the consumer goods, marketing, communication, etc. So I decided to try it and say, okay, I'm going to spend one year or so in consulting in the consulting area and see if I meet a company or if I meet a sector that I like and I want to work in. Uh, so this was in 2003 and I've been consultant from 2003 to 2014. Right. So uh, <laughs> my consulting career started by Chen uh, mm. and I, I didn't think it would, it would be that long. And how did it go in terms of your reconciliation with Morocco and your quest for meaning that you didn't have at Boreal? Yeah. So, I think I found a lot of answers. So, so the first thing that I did is let's put my passport aside. I'd say, I'm not going to ask for any visa and I'm going to stay here. I'm not leaving Morocco until I feel completely comfortable being here. I, I worked during the week and I made new friends, like from my, my, my colleagues became my friends. And some of my colleagues were very into nature, very into traveling to Morocco. So we had a first trip together to a place called the Bin and Widan, which is a beautiful lake in the middle of the Atlas Mountains. And th this trip was like amazing. And then I started like traveling around Morocco. I spent one month's road trip in, in a small Toyota Yaris with the, my dad, my sister, and a friend coming from France. And 
also I traveled the I did the road trips in the south. I did rallies. I did so so many uh, uh, trips around Morocco just to discover my country as an adult and not as a child traveling with grandparents and parents, etc. And this was like a great reconciliation. The other part of the reconciliation was uh, from the professional side because I was working for the Moroccan companies helping them improve their performance, helping them reorganize, helping them basically uh, grow. And this made total sense for me to contribute to, de to the development of my country. And, and very quickly after I started, like say one year or one year and a half after I started as a junior consultant, McKinsey started having projects in Morocco. And they took us at business consulting as co-contractors or subcontractors. Mm -hmm. And I started working on projects with McKinsey, with the McKinsey team. And the first big project that I did was the industrial strategy for, and it was a strategy to, to grow the industry, the industrial sector. And I was in charge of one sector that I really loved, which was the arts and crafts, handicraft sector and artisanat. And I was the consultant in charge of the uh, handicraft sector growth mm -hmm. strategy. And this sector was completely, something completely meaningful to me because uh, the Moroccan handicraft is something very important. It holds our culture, our tradition, our way of life. It's also, there are a lot of small craftsmen and women working in there. So there is a great part of social development into the sector. And it's the, the, we found out that there was a great potential, potential in the sector to develop and to, to export and, 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 and to grow structured sector out of this traditional, let's say, business or traditional art. And it made total sense for me. And I loved it so much. So it was a lot of work, a lot of field work, a lot of meeting amazing people, completely passionate about the, their sector, about their art. And I loved it. I mm. loved it from like every single standpoint. I loved it. I just loved this project. And, and for the small story, at, at the end of this project, McKinsey asked me to join. Basically, just just start the process to to join us because they were opening an office in Morocco. And I said no because I said, okay, no, I love what we did and like, to de to define the strategy, but I want to implement it. I want to see it become, becoming a real project and having like concrete impact uh, on the ground, on people and on Morocco, on our exports, etc. So I stayed on the implementation of this strategy with the minister's team for 18 months after oh, wow. we defined the strategy of making the 18 months. So almost two years working on, on, on this strategy and its implementation. And after that, I, I met again McKinsey team and they told me, well, are you convinced that you want to join? And I said, okay, I, I'm going to start the process. And this is when I started the process and I, I joined McKinsey in 2007. That sounds quite a natural evolution in your career. Oh, and at that time, Morocco was growing in, in every single sector. So there were like lots of strategies. So I kept on working on the industrial sector strategy. I worked also on the education strategy. I worked on, on the development of SMEs. And then something great happened. 
Oh, and then I was still looking for Nini. <laughs> and let me pause there. Because all this was very meaningful for me. Like having impact on my country and serving my country with, with this great project was really meaningful. However, there was something inside, inside of me looking for a deeper meaning. And this deeper meaning, and I say, okay, but we are in a country that is still developing, but of course, we're still in a poor country. And we have big challenges. We have 50% of our population, which is rural, not educated. We are struggling with the availability of water. We are the door at the desert, the Sahara desert. And there are a lot of migrants coming from Africa to Canada. Speak. Okay, but there is something like deeper. So and basically, if we don't manage to feed our people, if we don't manage to provide water, this is all meaningless. We will not do anything. So I, I, was, I was kind of having these ideas. They were not that clear at the time. But while I was having these ideas, something happened is that the country started looking for a consultant to do the agriculture sector strategy for the Plan Marobert, Green Morocco. And I said, okay, I'm, I want to work on it. And I started working on agriculture sector and I totally fell in love with agriculture sector. Totally. I, I, I loved it so much. Like, you know, I, I really loved the other sector. The agriculture sector was for me something amazing. There were so many challenges, so many opportunities, so many important things at stake with the sector that I completely dived into it. And I never came back from this life. Basically, I'm still in there. <laughs> so for you, what was attracting you into this project and the agriculture sector was the stakes? It sounds like it's, yeah. okay, lots of yeah. challenges, lots of opportunities and, and very important, as I said earlier, yeah. in Morocco, there's still 50% of the people who are rural and actually being able to feed oneself, one nation is when you look at the pyramid of Maslow, that's at the bottom of the pyramid, right? Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for saying that because at that time, I remember having been thinking about the pyramid of Maslow. Exactly. Mm. And I just want to, to highlight what it means for Morocco. Basically, if, if you look at Morocco GDP. And if you look at, at the rain, grateful in Morocco, it's almost correlated. Like hmm. when, when it rains, the GDP goes up. And hmm. when, when it doesn't rain, the GDP goes down. But the agriculture sector that is directly correlated, related to the rain, is less than 20% of the GDP. So how come? So it's something much bigger than what it is in the data. It's in the mindset. It's in the trust. It's in the... I was thinking something that's subconscious. Yep. Uh, when there is rain, people are confident, people take risks, people do stuff, they invest, they get married, they get children, etc. The rain ripple effect do. is immense. Yes, is mm. immense, is immense. And I don't want to talk too much about my perspective right now because I want to stay from my perspective at that time. But it was one of the first analyses that, that we made when we were working on the Green Morocco it was one of the first analysis showing me the correlation between the GDP and the rain. Yeah, it's the first time actually I hear of such a correlation ever. Yeah. And that's, that's fascinating actually. So you got, you dived into it. Yes, I completely <laughs> into dived into it. And then that was love at first sight and it just is continued ever after. Exactly. And I think I'm, I'm, it's going to be love at, at end sight for sure. <laughs> My love sector till the end. So yes, uh, and I had amazing chance to work for McKinsey at that time. So after Green Morocco, 
I just worked around this sector in Africa. I worked also in Middle East and Southeast Asia on, on the agriculture sector, food sector development, the food and agriculture value chain. So it was broader than just agriculture sector development. And I had different types of clients and I did different types of projects, but I just dived into the, its different aspects. And I'm, so I, I left, I left Morocco as my home country. So it was still my home country professionally, but in 2010, I left Morocco for 18 months and I went to mm -hmm. the Democratic Republic of Congo and Kinshasa to do a project on the preservation of the forest, which is the second tropical forest in the world after the Brazilian one. Uh, I'm not sure that everybody knows that. <laughs> in the DRC. Yeah, it's crazy. So we worked on the, this project for the COP50. And then I went to South Africa and I worked for animal health company to work on their strategy for Africa. And while being there, I worked also on Nigeria, on Kenya, on Tanzania. And then I worked for the Singaporean government on a food security project. And then I came back and I worked for on a major development project. I worked on Nigeria again, on the meat industry and the cereals industry. So I just like traveled the world on agriculture and agriculture related projects, I would say. Wow. So it's, uh, you dived into it and then you did a world tour. It sounds yes. <laughs> on that topic. Exactly. I just want to go back to what, uh, the lady, one of the partners you said interviewed you at the very beginning of your consulting career yes. and yes. he or she said, you may not really like the fact that there isn't that much creativity in the mm -hmm. tasks. And so mm -hmm. clearly hearing you, there was a ton of meeting from what you were doing, yes. especially yes. in the agriculture sector. Yes. What I wonder is what about the tasks themselves? I would say I, I really love the problem solving process. And, and you mentioned it at, at the very beginning. I, I teach and facilitate training about problem solving. So I, I love this part of like very structured process of solving complex problems. And I found it very exciting. But what really nurtured me in the process was the relationship part. So, so basically my process, and I, of course, I learned to know myself in this whole consulting career. My process was I first spent enough time with people on the ground, talking to them and understanding what's going on. And then I can come back and work on the deliverable and I can have it right. But mm -hmm. I need to spend a lot of time with people talking and see and letting my basically intuition and all the emotional part get into it. So I, I had to trust, to recognize my own process, to trust it. And to communicate it to others and say, okay, this is the way it works for me. And this is the way it works really well for me. Mm. So no desk learned... research, really ground research. Yes. But it's not no desk research, but desk research and second time. Ground research and first talking to a lot of people. And then I can make some desktop research. But you cannot like just tell me that so go sit and read whatever you have to read it and you make your deliverable. It's impossible for me. I cannot do it this way. I had to discover my process and trust it and communicate it to others and have them trust it too. And I'm thankful and grateful that it's really worked and others understood my process. 
And the, the other part is that I, I, I found a lot of energy from the team work, like being, being with the team and like working together and discovering things and having fun and having hard times, etc. I, I love this team part of the job. And I, like my motto at this time was work hard, party hard. <laughs> and I was a real hard worker, but the hard part here too. And I was in charge of the office life, for instance. And the office life was like full of events and going out and doing yoga together and traveling and like partying together, etc. And I thought it was the central part of the, I guess this is the way I express my creativity. And I have to say that I've always looked for in, innovative and creative solutions to the problems I was, I was solving at that time. However, I learned in the problem solving process that I needed to check whether these solutions were interesting or not. So basically I had, I, it was okay to have the visions and to envision like new words and new solutions, et cetera. But then I had to do the models to make sure that these visions were really worth it. And it was not like just something completely crazy and creative. Yeah. So I learned to to balance the process and have also the other part of the process, which is the details, get going to the details and the things. Sure. And then I guess the 18 months executing on the agriculture, oh, sorry, on the industry project yeah. must have helped. I wonder how did yeah. you, and this is really personal curiosity, but I wonder how do you get the creative and innovative solutions out? How do you come across them or how do you express them? How do you find them? Oh, I, there, there is an, an inner intuitive process. I would say there is something that just comes from, from deep inside of me and I just envision things. And, uh, when I go on the ground and I, I see, I have ideas and I connect to other ideas that I've seen in other countries, in other regions, et cetera. So I just like connect different things I, I, and this can come up with creative ideas. But there, there was another part, which was like bas basically nurturing this intuition. And at that time at McKinsey, of course, there were moments that were hard because we were working very hard. And sometimes I lost balance, of course. So I, this is when I started my own personal development process and I started doing yoga and meditation and acupuncture. And when I was at the time, like in around the 2010 or so, I used to meditate every day. It was my morning routine, 20 minutes every single morning uh, before starting anything. Mm. And I have to say that meditation really nurtured my creative process. Can you share a little more to our listeners? How does it, if you can, if you can express it with words? Okay, it's, it's not easy, but, but I'll, I'll try, I'll try. I, I will just uh, share with you a moment. I, I was sitting in Mozambique. I was sitting in, in a very beautiful beach in a bay. And I was just having my 20 minutes meditation. And when I opened my eyes, I was surrounded with butterflies, with small butterflies. And I really wanted to, to find an explanation. And I guess I was sitting on a nest. <laughs> and when I was meditating, I don't know what happened, but they just were born at that time. But so when, when I used to live this in my morning meditations or during my days, this 
totally nurtured my own creativity. And I have to say that it was a big switch from my childhood creativity, which was like more kind of daydreaming persisted and telling myself stories. At that time, when I started meditating, like the, the magic was really happening around me. And it's meant to be deeply connected to what is going on around me. So I, I can share many moments at that time. And it was, they were very in, into the African environment, the sub-Saharan Africa, African environment. My first project was in the, in sub-Saharan Africa was in DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I had the chance to go with the minister, the first three minister and tourism minister and his team on a plane where there were like 20, 20 seats. And I was the only McKinsey person to go with them. And we went in the middle of the, the Congolese forest. It was like amazing forest. And we were sitting in the middle of this forest with the minister, with there were journalists and his team, et cetera. And we were sitting in this forest and it was raining and we were having like deep conversations about the country, the continent, the, the future of the continent, etc. And it was completely surreal. It was mm. so beautiful and completely surreal. But it was true. It was totally true. I couldn't have imagined it. And then after that, after this conversation, we took speedboats on the Congolese River, which is like a beautiful, large river. And we took speedboats and, and we spent hours on the speedboats on the Congolese River with the sun uh, setting right in front of us. And it was just so magical. It was like a movie, but all of it in this movie, <laughs> showing out of my dreams. And I, I truly believe that I deeply connected with this moment because of my meditation practice that just allowed me to be completely present at that moment. To these moments, to that moment, to that magical moment. I was just totally present. I was not telling myself stories about whatever, what to do next, um, the next deliverable, the next meeting, the role I had to play, blah, blah, blah. I was not having any blah, blah in my mind. I was just present to what was going on in my life. Yeah. 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 So being really open to the experience and really fully immersing yourself into it. Exactly. Sounds beautiful. And, and I, just as a side way, it's just, again, personal curiosity, but what type of meditation do you practice? It's just sitting silent meditation. And I focus on my breathing. So no mantra, no words. Sometimes I use like guided meditations, but most of the time it's just a gong mm -hmm. and I just focus on my breathing. And mm -hmm. So you've had this amazing opportunity to travel, to go deep into agriculture, then to go wide in a way with your depth yeah. across different countries. You were all the way to Singapore, uh, but mostly in Africa. And then what happened? I guess I did mention the, the personal <laughs> side of the story, but I, I, I went, I, I kept on going through hard times, uh, family-wide. My dad was sick and then he, he, he spent seven years handicapped, so it was quite hard. And I, I had a first marriage that didn't go well. So this was the hard part, hard personal, personal part. It was in parallel of all this. But after all these experiences and after all these travels in Africa where I felt really grounded and I felt I was really into my life and into my journey. And it, it took me some hard times and also some like deep commitment to, 
to find myself in all this. I came back to Morocco and I just met someone that is my husband now. And then it felt totally right. Uh, and it was a turning point. I can stop there because I, I don't, maybe you want to investigate for what I just said before I go into this part of the story, but it was a, it's another chapter. It's mm. definitely another chapter. I mean, it sounds like you were really fed by your career, by your work, but that your personal life at the same time was challenging. So maybe there was a, an energy input and a, and a big energy output on the other side. And it sounds yes. like when you met your current husband, then it, there were two inputs, <laughs> right? I don't know exactly. the right description, but it sounds like it was much more balanced. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I, I met my husband at a time where my career was also at a turning point. So I was associate principal, which is like basically junior partner. It's right before the election to partnership. And my father had died that year. So we had 2011, I met my husband in 2012, and I was 80 at the time. And basically, I just asked myself the question, do I want to go to the next stage, which is like basically more? become become an important? Do I want to invest my time and energy and do it? Or do I want to do something else? And there were different things. The fact that, that I met my husband, the fact that also my father died, and I can explain why it, 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 it played on the balance. Because when I became 80, I just went out from the office and I said, okay, I want to call someone to share this great news. And I was only talking, uh, thinking that I wanted to share with my dad, yeah. but when my dad wasn't there anymore. So as if this whole promotion didn't make any sense anymore. It didn't make sense anymore. Uh, of course, my, my father didn't push me toward his career or, or nothing, but he was really proud of it. He was really proud of all this traveling and all these great projects. And as he was not there and said, okay, I, I didn't have this mirror, this pride mirror anymore. And I said, okay, I'm done. And now you, you get used to, to my I'm done, I'm done type of processes. <laughs> when I'm done, I'm done. So I was done. And the whole process with my husband was really great also because you know, we were into this meditation and mindfulness practice together. And we used to go to retreats together and the whole past. Our whole pattern, our journey together was very strong. So we decided to, that we wanted to have a first child. And I said, okay, it's a decision. Mm -hmm. uh, we want it. And I went to see my boss and say, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to leave. I want to, to leave because we want to have a child and I want to write a novel. I want to write a book and I want to dedicate time to, to, to write. And this is when my creativity came back, basically asking for time. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, fine. And I told him that I was leaving on a Tuesday and I was pregnant on like Saturday or something like that. It was just the right time. It sounds like you're closing the chapter. What about opening the new one? How clear an idea did you have of the chapter you wanted to open? Besides obviously having got married, having a child and yes. writing a book. Yeah. But I wonder in terms of your you know, career or work, did you have an idea of what shape you would take? No, I didn't have a clear idea. However, I, 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 I knew exactly what I didn't know. 
So I didn't want a full-time career that would take all my time and that wouldn't leave me time for creativity, for family, for exploring other things. Mm. So I wanted something flexible, I would say. I wanted something more creative in terms of, I'll say, shape, career shape, and much more flexible. And I wanted something that looked like me, not something that was basically designed for, I would say, everybody. I wanted something very personal and very specific to me and my dreams and, um, and my style. So it's not completely clear in terms of output, but clear in terms of, I would say, guidelines. It's very interesting because I left full of confidence that I was able to do amazing and hard things. So I took with me this confidence and this trust that I was able to do anything. Yeah, but it, it's uh -huh. interesting, right? Because at least looking at the mirror for myself, that is when it's hardest, at least it was hardest for me to think about leaving. When things are going well, mm -hmm. you're progressing, then you're just thinking, great, I'm probably at the right spot. Even though in my case, deep down, I knew I wasn't in my spot, but when things were going well, I had confidence that I could do something else, but I was also, that's quite comfortable. Yes. I'm not sure what my process was. Yeah. Yeah. Of course there were things that were comfortable. I, yeah. I remember I had this process of balancing. So every one and then I would just stop and like rebalance everything, like basically just draw a kind of uh, balance and put things on the, the, the right side of the balance and things on the left side or the bad side of the balance and see where the weight was. And if the good things were heavier than the bad things, it was fine. Uh, I, I kept on going. And if not, I, I decided to, to move. And I guess at that time, I just mentioned, it, it didn't make any more sense. Oh. When I got this promotion, so something, something was on, uh, it was not anymore on the good side, on right. the positive side of the balance. And on the other side, there were all this hard work and all this lifestyle that was not okay. There was also, I had a lot of conversations with people who were partners and I was Envisioning the work of a partner in like consulting firm, in big consulting firm. And I found out that there were things that I didn't really like, that is not too, too much connected to the groundwork anymore, not too much connected with the teams anymore. And life, I would say, not life, the, the balance, the work life balance was not getting better. So, I probably at the time assessed that the bank was not on the positive side anymore. And so you were done. <laughs> yeah, I was done. And then you got <laughs> pregnant, married, and, and started writing a book. Yes, and we moved to Paris. So we left Morocco, we moved to Paris, and I had, so it was great for me to just leave my pregnancy and have our first baby without any commitment, with anything, no job, no date to return to a job. No, nothing, zero commitment, just completely into this phase of my life and like becoming a mom, which was really great. And I just dedicated all my time to it and enjoyed it hundred percent. Then I started my writing. So I started going to writing class and I started writing. I didn't have a clear 
project at that time. So I just started writing a novel anchored in Morocco and in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I started investigating this whole African history of Morocco. And, and the process of creativity was not around like an end product or a deliverable that was predefined, but it was more a kind of... Uh, ongoing creativity process. So the story was writing while I was going to, to writing classes. And I used to also to, to nurture this creativity with a lot of station, with a lot of uh, just walking around in Paris and sitting in, in, in a coffee and writing this coffee and just let myself be inspired by what, by what was going on around me. So it's a very nice um, period of my life. Sounds like a big say. pause. Yes, I had been working for ten, almost 10 years. No, more than, yes, 10 years. I had been working for 10 years. Yeah, and being and present with, I guess, the other side of the balance, right? The family, your aspiration yes. for creativity. And, yes. uh, and we're fully into this. Exactly. And, and this calling for writing, you didn't mention it earlier, right? You said, well, I'm done and I want to write this novel. <laughs> yeah. Where okay. did that come from? Yeah, I, I didn't mention it, but I did mention it, basically. Because my when I was a child, I, I had this daydreaming process. I was telling myself story. And then when I was adult and I had a cool, I started all my meditation practice, I had all this magic coming into the reality of my life. So magic coming from outside and I was living this magic. So at some point, I wanted them to join the daydreaming part of my imagination and reality. And I wanted my imagination and my daydreaming to become real, to become something real. Mm. And as I didn't nurture my creativity in other ways than, <laughs> than working on deliverables, <laughs> I found out that the most natural thing for me was to write because I was, let's say, a good writer. I could write and I had some style and could write in different languages, etc. So it was the most natural process. Basically, painting or doing music was totally out of my, not even comfort zone, totally out of my zone. So I, I didn't go into new ways of creating. I just went to the most natural one, which was writing. And writing in what language? So it's... French, it's Moroccan French. And let me explain this because it was part of the process and I found it's a very beautiful part of the process. Basically, I thought I was a good French speaker and French writer. And all the grades that I had at high school and business school, I showed that I was a good French. <laughs> I was good at French. But I realized when I started writing that when I used a word, when I used to, to choose a word to express something, the meaning that this word had for me was not the meaning that it has for you as a French who was born in France, who was like his roots mm. in France and in the French culture. So I found out, for instance, let me give you an example. If we talk about Easter, Pâques, like for a French person, Pâques, it has all this religious meaning. It goes back to 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 to, to Jesus, to the Christ, to the Christianity, and it represents much more than what it represents for me. Mm. The bunny and the egg, then the holiday, have not the same meaning. Right. And if I use the word in Arabic, 
you say aid for me is something religious. It's something anchored in 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 Islam, and it has a lot of cultural and religious meaning that is completely integrated into me. But if I told you aid, what is aid? Beer and aid skin, and for you it's either and the Ramadan or the sheep sacrifice and the thing. Yeah, so, yeah. So now you get it. So when I started like this writing classes, I, re- I realized that my French was a Moroccan French, not a French French. <laughs> so I used to write in Moroccan French. So basically French in terms of language, but anchored into the Moroccan culture and history and tradition. It sounds like you've got this year of great polls after more than 10 years of being really busy with work. And and then what? Kinsey called me again. <laughs> so basically, I went to an, an alumni event and I just uh, reconnected with colleagues in Paris. Uh, and I met uh, a former colleague who was AP at the time where I left and she had become a partner. And she said, what are you doing, etc. And, and I said, okay, I'm, I'm here and, and I have taken pose, etc. And she called me a few weeks after that and said, okay, we are doing a... We're doing trainings, we're facilitating trainings for a client on problem solving. And I heard that you used to facilitate trainings for McKinsey new hires. So do you want to do it with us? So I just like did this first training and then the second one. And then she told me, we are looking for a new recruiting manager for the Paris office. Would you like to help us on that? It would probably be a transition role, say more or less a year for you to reshape the whole process. We can give you flexibility. So we agreed that it would be part-time, three, t- three days a week. And that the, on the two other days I was writing and I was taking care of my family. So I was not available at all. So we agreed to do it. And I came back as a part-time recruiting manager for the Paris office yep. for almost a year. And after this year, we had a conversation and said, okay, I think you define the, what you had to define. And we're probably looking for uh, a different profile, more into the more present, like five, to, five days a week and more into the processes. And I said, okay, and I'm totally okay to leave because um, now I'm definitely done with being and stay. Yeah, with being employed for a company. I say now this is the last time I'm done. <laughs> so I I left and I and I had started my own business before I rejoined McKinsey and I just developed my activity on on leadership development, completely building on what I used to do for McKinsey internally. I used to facilitate trainings for new hire. I used to hire new candidates. I used to do leadership workshops. I was certified trainer on McKinsey leadership programs. So uh, I just uh, focused on that and I, I started growing this part of my activity. You said earlier you really enjoy or enjoyed the teamwork aspect of the missions. How is it today to be on your own? Oh, so this is a very good question. So when I started my activity, well, I was always embedded in teams, basically. So for instance, when I used to do training for McKinsey or with McKinsey, I was in every facilitation teams and groups of facilitators, and we used to do it together and support each other. Uh, and then when I started serving my other clients, I used to build this core team with my clients and been like working teams on even the topics we used to to develop or used to investigate or to get. And 
it also built a network of partners that do more or less the same things as I do, or complementary things, and created opportunities to work together. So as an example, one of the partners I work with right now is the partner that hired me mm. in 2003 in this full consulting company. And we are working together. We are serving clients together. So she created her own activity. She also basically she quit uh, her job and she founded a small company that does leadership development. And we have projects together and we develop project together. So I'm not into one team, but I create my own teams. Right. And so you keep that, that freedom. Exactly. And, and great. And, and so now you've been doing this for six years. Do you have any perspective on, on what's next on my you experience. working in leadership development? Yeah. Yes. So yes, I, I, I have a sense where it's going, but basically my practice has been doing really good. And I have been developing amazing clients relationships and I've been growing with my clients. Uh, as they grow, I've been growing. And this job like helped me to, to give my best, but to give my best, I'm also working on myself and I keep developing. So I, I, I love this process because I can either do it while, well, going to retreats and the doing whatever trainings and getting into a program, a leadership program or a psychotherapy program, or whatever. And I can also do it on the job. So I do both, but I love to do it on the job. I love to keep growing as a leader on the job. So this part is very important for me. What does that look like? Growing yes, on the job. It, growing on the job. So for instance, when I, I facilitate a leadership workshop and we start with, let's say, strengths. We start working on strengths yep. and say, okay, to work on strengths, I say, let's give an example of a situation where you felt you gave the best of yourself, blah, blah, blah. And then I will we will give you feedback on the strengths that we've heard. And sometimes I, I get to tell my own story because to create pairs, I need to, to pair with someone for instance. Sure. So I just get to tell the story I've been in, like in the last years and the COVID and like dealing with 10,000 things and it was very hard, etc. And I get this amazing feedback from the participant on my strengths. And it's also the time for me to reflect on myself while facilitating, while helping others grow. And as, as a gift, I get their feedback and I get to grow myself. And what I'm committed is to bring the participants the best space for them to grow. So in order to bring the best space for them to grow, I need to clear and clean my own space. I cannot bring my own fears and stress and worries into this space. So I have to work on myself first. My mantra is, it's not about me. It's about them. But then my parts with my group, et cetera. So it's not about me. So here to facilitate the process. So I have to leave my ego. I have to leave everything at the door. And the, the Zoom door and then go into Zoom or into the, the space where we're working together. 
I'd love to hear a bit about the IDACT and, and what's the energy behind this project, which sounds is also not only energy giving, but also energy. Yes, it is definitely. So I think that there is a red thread in my journey that I don't, I, I try to integrate all the parts. So I try not to leave anything behind and not, I try not to leave anything on the side. So for instance, I left McKinsey as an employee, but I still work with McKinsey and for McKinsey and serve McKinsey. And I'm very much connected into the McKinsey network and into the McKinsey. I have, I have left have the African tour, so I don't travel that much, but I'm still very much connected into the African networks and I'm connected into the African music and I'm connected into the, the African culture, etc. So I keep what I really like and passionate about in my life. So there was a big part of my passion that was around agriculture. But when I left McKinsey, I, I paused, I paused the working on agriculture, but still it was there. My love for the sector and my passion for the sector was still there. So I had just to express it differently. And the way I expressed it first was around like feeding my baby, because when I had a baby, I like, I was thinking, what, what am I feeding my baby? What are these things that I'm giving him? <laughs> what are these fruits? What are the vegetables? Where are they coming from? Is it healthy? Is it good for him? So I started like looking at the food and then I say, okay, there are processes, there are processes that produce this food that are not okay, that are not healthy. And I'm, I don't want to go into these processes, but I, I want to follow alternative processes. So we started like by buying locally, buying from local producer, biological producers, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, yeah, but there is another part of it, which is not only buy it from, and maybe there is something around autonomy and resilience, which is around like producing. So we went with my husband into a training on permaculture, and I, I can give you more details on permaculture if you want. Maybe yeah. just ex explain yes. what is permaculture in, in a few words. Yes. I think for some people, yes. it may not be, um, they may not be familiar. Of course. So permaculture is coming from permanent culture. So basically it's copy the natural ecosystems that produce permanently to feed human beings. And the natural ecosystem that we can think about is the forest, for instance. So for the forest produces all the time. There are the trees, but like behind, below the trees, there are tons of vegetation. And, and this natural ecosystem is very interesting to copy to feed human beings. And they are very safe and very natural and, and, and they can, they have, they serve um, the planet because they mitigate also the climate change. But let's not dive into this part of climate change, which is another story. Permanent culture, permaculture has been developed by the Australian, Australians, and they developed this whole system of the permaculture ecosystems that are not only around agriculture, but they talk also about human permaculture and it's really thinking through the whole ecosystem and building something sustainable and stable in the long term for the planet, for the people, and also for the lands that we are transforming this way. So we, we were reading a lot around this. 
and we took a first training on permaculture in France. And we started our own vegetable garden, sorry, in the, when we were living in Paris, in Paris area. And it was great because we had our herbs and we had our potatoes and our tomatoes. And it was, it was really great. And while discussing with my husband, who had also left his corporate career and started working for himself, he said, well, we would love to, to live in a, let's say, a land or farm, whatever. Uh, where we can grow our kids, where we can live in a sustainable way and really experience resilience and autonomy. And we want to give this as a, a deep skill to our children who will probably face when they are adults, terrible crisis due to climate change. We say we want them to be able to be resilient and to know how to be autonomous and to have these skills completely embedded into their and their beings basically since childhood. So we started asking ourselves where we do it. Would we stay in France and do it in the south of France and get closer to the permaculture to the French permaculture community? Would we do it in Reunion Island? My husband is from Reunion Island and his family is there. Or would we do it in Morocco or in some other place? And we went through this thinking process for uh, one year or two. And then we decided we would go back to Morocco. So in 2018, we moved the family to Morocco. We looked for land and we found the two acres land where we started our project. And this is when my passion for agriculture became a real agriculture project but very different from what I was doing at McKinsey because I was not like into the, the value chains and the economics, et cetera. And at the big scale, I was, I am in a small scale and completely into the experience and the, like being a farmer basically, but still having also all the knowledge, uh, the economics knowledge. And we are into the process of creating something that, that would look like an edible forest resilient to the semi-arid region where we live, where we struggle with the lack of water and lack of rain, uh, very high temperatures and enjoying the process. And I think this is the most difficult part is to enjoy the process because it's not that easy. Sometimes it's very hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can imagine you, you were, I, we weren't recording when you talked about having had a very hot summer. And having maybe part of your farm, at least part of the crops yeah. burnt by the sun. Complete, exactly. And we are completely struggling with the lack of water right now. It has been, it hasn't rained at all since the, the, the beginning of September at all. And we are preparing the autumn culture and the winter cultures and, and there is no rain and there is no water in our dam and we cannot plant anything because we are completely struggling with that and it's. It's so hard. It is so hard. It's something that's much bigger than what we are. But, but, but still, we, we are fighting. We want to find solutions. And we are. And I, and I can tell you the next part of the story because, as I mentioned, I'm coming from this consulting part and problem solving, et cetera. So I'm not going to say, okay, there is no rain. I'm done and I cannot do it. So we, we will find solutions. And there is another part that is coming to my life right now is that I've been called as an expert on agriculture sector in a few projects. 
and I've been called uh, by uh, a, a laboratory that that helps that, that grows the tech startups in Morocco, and they've called me to support them and uh, and grow uh, agri tech companies. And I've started looking at this field that I, I had known before. I said, okay, there is probably something around technology that we can use to monitor our farm, to measure every single thing, and to make it a four point zero permaculture farm <laughs> and solve the problems that we are facing uh, right now and that we will face probably in the future more and more around like the climate change with technology. And with the help of also of other peoples and with the great community, we are being embedded in the permaculture community here in Marrakesh in Morocco, but also globally. So we are all looking for innovative uh, technological solutions to against climate change and, and be resilient and autonomous. Going back to what you were saying about teaching your kids those skills and the resilience and being able to face future Difficulties with climate change, it sounds like what you're experiencing may be very difficult, but that may be the most powerful teaching moments as well. Yes. Yes. And I don't know if you realize that basically we moved in our land on May uh, 2019. And in February 2020, we were locked down due to COVID. Right. So less than a, less than a year after we settled in our farm, we faced COVID, basically. And COVID was something that my husband and I were imagining our kids to face when they, they would be adults. We were not thinking that less than a year after being in our farm, we would climate change related crisis. And we experienced autonomy. We experienced resilience. We were locked down on two acres. We were six of us with a woofer, with someone that was helping us in the garden, our gardener, who is our employee. And we were growing our vegetables and like eating what the land was giving us and, and teaching our kids and like homeschooling and like baking our bread, etc. So we were completely into the experience that we wanted to have. So in a way, it's very challenging, but a, a gift of, of teaching. Yes, a gift of teaching, but also something, if I may say this way, something much bigger that told us <laughs> that we were right to mm. be there. We were at the right place at the right time. And it was right and it is right. It is hard, but it is right. And it makes total sense. Wow, Kenza, I'm actually, there are lots of things I'd like to explore more. Maybe we do uh, another round one day. But I wonder, before you know, we close, when you look back at your steps and, and the key moments and periods, what's been most rewarding to you? What's been more rewarding? Definitely the kids. Because well, basically they're so present and so alive and also so challenging. But they bring us to the present moment. They bring me to life. They bring me to simplicity. And I'll say the whole journey, is, it's very rewarding. No, I, I always ask myself, if I were to die now, would I regret anything? And I, I, I hate to say myself, so I'm, I make every single decision not to say yes to, to, to this question. <laughs> so I don't regret anything and I don't regret the challenging. I don't regret the hard times. I do not regret, let's say, 
what could be seen as a bad decision, like whatever, I leave the career and say, I'm done when I say, I'm done. Some people say, you're crazy. What are you done with whatever, leaving the country or leaving job like this, et cetera. I just make sure when I make the decisions that I'm totally aligned when I make them and then not regret them never. And I say, okay, I'm aligned. I just go and I trust the process that will take me to something else. And how do you know where I'm going? that you're aligned? I know that I'm aligned when deep inside of me, I feel it's okay. I, I feel there is nothing more for me there. It's very difficult to just uh, put words on that, but it feels right. I'm saying, I'm done. It's finished. I'm moving to something else. Inside, it's totally quiet and it's okay. And then, of course, there, there could be fear in my head or in like whatever. And sh- of course, my head can tell 10,000 things, but deep inside, it's quiet and it's okay with what's happening. And I try to feel And And maybe that's the answer to my final question. Is there any other piece of advice you would give to people who are looking for direction? Yes, there is one piece of advice. That, that really helped me is to, to commit, to completely commit to, 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 to small routines that are completely helping the journey and helping the process. So when I mentioned the meditation routine, the 20 minutes, mm-hmm. this, this was a big routine that really helped me. Even though I, I, I didn't practice all the time 20 minutes when I was like mom and sleep at night, I wouldn't practice 20 minutes meditation a day. But it's a routine that is embedded me. There is a gratitude routine that is embedded in our lives. So every evening before we go to bed and say thanks to each other for something that we have appreciated. We have a routine with my husband. It will beginning anew that's from, let's say, once or twice a year, we just sit and we express things that we've appreciated, things that we've regret and we express also being sorry towards being sorry for things that we did to the other person that might have harmed them. So we have routines that help us go along our journey and stay connected. Yeah. And nurture you and and give yes. you the energy and, and cleans as well every year. Wow. Yes. Kenza, thank you so much for being here on the podcast and sharing your journey. It's been really inspiring to hear it. Thank you very much, Greg. I'm happy we had this moment to share. Hi there. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Derby podcast. I hope it inspired you and that you got to learn about what it actually is like when you decide to do what you really want to do. I'm on a mission to help people start on their path to meaningful success. So if you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it to people who may benefit from it. Also, if you know of people who need direction, tell them about Derby. They can find us at www.derby.me. Till next we meet, Derby yourself.